morning. Today we celebrate the most important event in history. It was planned before the foundation of the world. It was hinted at in the garden. It was spoken of by the prophets. It was recognized in the incarnation, seen in the life of Christ, secured at the cross of Christ. And it is this, God accomplishing eternal redemption through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Please open your Bibles. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15 about that very fact. And stand with me to read God's word. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this day, the day that You have made. Lord, grant us that we would Rejoice and be glad in this day and in you. We pray, Lord, as we consider your word now, you would change us more into the people you desire us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we focused on the cross. Today, the resurrection, the empty tomb. We come face to face with the most important truth ever, though some deny it. God says otherwise. I want you to see today what it does for believers and how it should change our lives and why it is so important. Now, some say the resurrection never took place. It didn't happen. And we are not shocked when unbelievers don't believe But we grieve when those who claim to be Christians say it is false. To deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus is to depart from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Jesus Seminar, comprised of a group of liberal scholars who say that only 18% of what Jesus said in the New Testament is really true, actually said this, the body of Jesus decayed as do other corpses. They also said the resurrection of Jesus did not involve the resuscitation of a corpse. And they said it was not an event that could have been captured with a video camera. One of their own, John Dominic Crossan, said, I do not think that anyone, anywhere, at any time, brings people back to life. Another, Thomas Sheehan, said bluntly, Jesus regardless of where his corpse ended up, is dead and remains dead. These are people who profess to believe. Early in the 20th century, Harry Emerson Fosdick argued against the literal truth of the Bible and against the existence of hell. It was time he and other progressive 
urged and argued for the faith to give up once for all its supernatural claims. Good Ludeman, once of Vanderbilt University, stated that the tomb of Jesus was not empty but full, and his body did not disappear but rotted away. Even more confused was Marcus Borg, who said, I think the resurrection of Jesus really happened. But I have no idea if it involves anything happening to his corpse. And therefore, I have no idea whether it involves an empty tomb. So I would have no problem whatsoever with archaeologists finding the corpse of Jesus. For me, he said, that would not be a discrediting of the Christian faith or the Christian tradition. Live from the pit of hell. Now, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who after he died called him a fraud and an imposter, they deny the only Savior. Unbelievers masquerading as believers, wolves in sheep clothing, blind guides of the blind. The Apostle Paul saw things quite differently. He knew that it was the most important truth ever, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That Christ's resurrection transforms our lives and secures our future. That everything we believe is based upon that happening. The empty tomb does matter. Now you can side with those who deny the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel of the grace of God in Christ, or you can side with God himself. But it seems to me that a choice that obvious between fools who say basically that there is no God and God himself is truly a gift from God. A choice that obvious is a gift from God. The true church celebrates faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead today and every Lord's day and every day we live. Looking into the empty tomb, the women heard the angels ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. It has been the faith of the church for 2,000 plus years, and it will be the faith of the church until Christ returns to, re- to claim his bride. Paul affirms this priority when he wrote to the Corinthian believers, and more important than their understanding of spiritual gifts was their understanding of the gospel. Paul speaks of the resurrection of the dead. He says in chapter 15 and verse 1, I make known. It's the gospel which I preach to you, he says. Literally, the gospel which I gospelized to you. He was the first to preach the gospel in Corinth. He knew the people well. He spent a long time there with them, preaching Christ and establishing them in the faith. And he says that this gospel that he gave them, verse 2, is the gospel uh, literally that they were being saved by. They were being saved by. That salvation is a past, present, and future experience. And Paul points to the empty to the empty tomb and to the cross as as the gospel, as the content of the gospel that he preached. In verse 3, he reminded the Corinthians that he had given them as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died. And at the moment of his death, 
the power of his inextinguishable life exerted itself. At the moment of his death, dead people came back to life. They came out of their graves. Here's an interesting thing you see in Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53. The dead people came back to life. And then it says that after his resurrection, they came out of their tombs. And they went into Jerusalem. And they were seen by many people. You've got to wonder, what were they doing between Christ's death and resurrection? They're in their tombs talking to each other. Next, in verse, five, in verse 4, Paul says, also of first importance, most important for them to know was that Jesus was buried and that he was raised on the third day. We have that terminology in Peter's speech in Acts chapter 10, and Jesus points it out as, as a part of prophecy in Luke chapter 24. The tense used for the term he was raised emphasizes that he continues as still risen. A continuing condition that has given rise to a new state of affairs. That his resurrection was the great proof of his deity and divine sonship. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24 says this. This man, Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God... You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Christ died and then was buried and was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He died according to the scriptures and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Scripture tests texts like Isaiah 53. Now it speaks abundantly of Christ's death, but it also speaks of Christ's resurrection. Embedded there in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it said that it was the will of God to crush him, that he has put him to grief, that's the cross. When his soul makes an offering for sin, that's the cross. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's the resurrection. And Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. That says after two days he will revive us. After three days he will raise us up. That we may live before him. And Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. States that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus used that example as an example of his coming resurrection. Jesus was raised before he could decay, before he would, could see corruption, Psalm 16 and verse 10 tells us. Interesting, unlike the Gospels, Paul does not mention the empty tomb. The reason why he doesn't mention the empty tomb is because the eyewitnesses that he, that he states provide proof of what happened to Jesus. In verse 5, he says that he appeared. He appeared. First, he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. He appeared to, verse 6, more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says, that while he was writing this, probably about 25 years after the fact, they, many of them, most of them, were still alive. They could attest to what he wrote. They saw it with their own eyes. They saw Jesus 
the risen Christ with their own eyes. He said some have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for they died physically. He appeared to James and then all the apostles. And then Paul says in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me there on the Damascus road. The living Lord showed himself to his followers and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. It says that he appeared to the twelve. The twelve. The twelve is used to describe the apostles whether or not they were always together. As we know, Judas was no longer a part of the twelve at that point. He was dead. The first time Jesus appeared to them as well, we know that Thomas was not there. But in verses 3 through 5, Paul gives four things that explain the gospel that he preached and he, he, he uses four verbs died for our sins literally over in behalf of our sins and, and the word buried and raised and appeared died, buried, raised and appeared it was the creed of the early disciples it was a sample of the apostles preaching it was according to the scriptures God says the resurrection is a fact the resurrection matters. Without the cross, without the empty tomb, there is no good news, no gospel, no salvation. So what did the resurrection accomplish for believers? What did it do for us? It, it did three things. The first thing is it caused our regeneration. It caused us to be born again. It's something that God does to us in the past. Regeneration is God's doing. The Spirit makes it possible for sinners to be saved by giving them a new heart through regeneration. Jesus said, you must be born again. So it's easy to think that that's a command that we need to follow, right? You must be born again. But be born is passive, not active. Repent and believe our actions that we are to do as a result of being born again. But we receive the new birth. It is done for us and to us. Think about it. I mean, in, in, in the mind of the baby, the birth just happens. A birth just happens to you. You don't choose to be born. It happens. You don't birth yourself. We are born by the will of God, John 1 tells us. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God has caused us to be born again, to experience rege rege regeneration there through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 3, verses 5 and 6 speaks of being born of the Spirit. Titus 3, 5 says that God has saved us. Now, this is all in the context of believers. God has saved us according to His mercy and the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. James 1, 18 says that of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. So what do we do? We thank God and live in the reality of that truth. We preach in a graveyard. We preach to dead people who can do nothing unless and until God does a work in their hearts. God raises the dead. We don't. So the first thing it causes our regeneration. The second thing is it provided for our repentance. Repentance is a gift from God, but it's something we do. It's something God grants to us. 
we live a life of repentance through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrection. There is a, an idea of humility that, that comes about. God taught Paul humility. Philippians 3, in verse 8. Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, being like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31 says that God gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. That he grants repentance that leads to life in Acts eleven eighteen. 2 Timothy 2 speaks of God granting repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So the second thing it provides is our repentance. And the last thing it provides is it ensures something, ensures our future resurrection. It's something that God promises for us in the future that we can't grasp so, so much. There were people in the Corinthian church that disputed the future resurrection of believers. This is why Paul is going into the details he goes into in 1 Corinthians 15. This is why 1 Corinthians 15 is so long. It's a long chapter. And he's making a a, a big point to people who were denying that believers would be resurrected in the future. But they could not deny the resurrection of Jesus because it was an established fact. It was the very foundation of their faith. But Paul makes it clear that the resurrection of Jesus cannot be separated from the future resurrection of believers. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. If Christ did not rise bodily from the grave, you cannot be saved. Paul goes on and he says then, and if that's true, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished as well. Those who have died believing have perished as well. He says if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus seminar people need to zero in on 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Hello? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans chapter chapter 6. In verse 4. It says this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection accomplished everything for believers. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the resurrection doesn't matter. Now in contrast to a believer's life in Christ, those who do not believe, the resurrection of Christ has the opposite effect. In fact, it spells their death. To a believer, Christ's death means their life. For those who refuse to believe, Christ's death means their death. It leads to their downfall. They stumble over the stone of stumbling and rock of offense. To a believer, Christ's life leads to a humble acknowledgement of Christ. To those who refuse to believe, Christ's life means their destruction due to pride. A believer's death means their glory. Unbelievers die, and Christ's life means their eternal misery. They cut themselves off from the source of life, and so God shuts them out of his eternal joy. Here's the thing. The gospel must be preached to people if they're going to believe and be saved through its message. And belief in the resurrection is essential to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian if you do not believe in the resurrection. There's absolutely no way. The church knew this from the beginning. Paul left no room for doubt, saying that all who are saved confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9. And what happens is God manifests through us, through believers, the sweet aroma of his presence everywhere we go. You say, well, I was in an argument with my neighbor yesterday. Me too, but hey, um, God manifests the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place we go. And to one, it's an aroma of life. To another, it's the stench of death. To an unbeliever, the gospel has the stench of death. It smells like death to them because that's what they've got. We've got to be clear. We've got to be honest. We can't tell people lies we can't put, I've been, to, I've been to funerals before where, where pastors will put people into heaven that they had no idea if that person ever believed. That's, God, that's God's deal. We got to tell the truth about what is true. 
Here's an interesting one. Upper room, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, John chapter 13. Right after he does so, he says to Judas, what you're going to do, go and do quickly. Some of the disciples thought, oh, he's going to go buy food or he's going to give money to the poor. Only Jesus knew that he was going to go and betray him. But right after that, and what does Jesus say? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Judas didn't get the new commandment. Unbelievers are excluded from fellowship with God. It's not possible. They must come through Christ. And it it brings up a question that is painful for us. It's painful for us who believe. It's a question we ask over and over and over again. It's why isn't everyone saved? We We would that everyone would be saved. But we know that everyone isn't saved. We all know people that have died unbelieving. We all know people right now that persist in unbelief. So why isn't everyone saved? Just this last week, the Barna Research Group put out its most recent survey and it showed that many Christians embrace certain aspects of universalist thought. What is universalist thought? That everyone will be saved. 25% of people who say they are Christians say that all people are eventually saved or accepted by God. You know what they did? They just trashed the resurrection. They just trashed the gospel. Doesn't that make you sad? 26% say it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. Oh my goodness, these are people that are saying they're believers in Jesus. They don't know the Bible. 40% indicated they believe Christians and Muslims worship the same God. What is going on? We've got to open up our Bibles and read them. Everyone is not saved. And let me tell you why everyone is not saved. Number one, because all people are not chosen. Only the elect will be saved. The second reason is because all people do not believe. Only those who believe will be saved. Those who do not believe will not be saved no matter what you tell them or what they tell themselves. Third reason is because all roads do not lead to heaven. Look, I can get to my house from this church in like 50 different ways in my car. You get to heaven one way. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Acts 4.12 There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. If I told you otherwise, I'd be lying to you. And here's what we can be confident of as believers. That whatever happens, ultimately, is what glorifies God the most. Because God works all things after the counsel of His will. There's a big question i got to ask now. Here's the question. So what? So what? You ask that question sometimes. Well, so what? What does it matter? What does it really matter? Now, we know that the cross requires death to self. We saw that last week. That the sinless Son of God died selflessly for our sins so that we would die to our sinful selves and live to God. We, we saw that as, re, as regards to the cross. But how does the resurrection change our lives? How does the resurrection transform us three simple things I'll give you 
The resurrection transforms, first of all, our hearts. Our hearts. We experience regeneration, therefore we have new desires. We have a new heart, new emotions. There's a man in our church whose dad got a new heart. A real new heart. God gives us a spiritual new heart. You're one inside your chest, that, that's, gonna, that's yours. You got that one, okay? But Jesus gives us a new heart to love him, to serve him. We have new emotions, new feelings, new love. We have renewed hope. We now can love the Lord with all our heart and mind and soul and strength when, when before all we did is love ourselves. We still struggle with that, but now we can love God. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 15 says this. I heard of your faith, Paul says, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It says that, we, that he prayed that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. 2 Corinthians 4.16 tells us that though our outer man is decaying, and boy, don't we know that, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Regeneration does that. The resurrection does that. What else? The resurrection transforms our actions, what we do, how we live our conduct, our observable lives, what could be captured with a video camera. It's the idea of living in repentance. Christianity is not a rigid set of moral rules to live by. It is not a set of beliefs that you merely agree to in principle sorry, and, and stay unmoved and unchanged in practice. It is a life-changing, God-inspired, God-focused, God-dependent movement of God among His people. That's what Christianity is. And so Christianity transforms, Jesus transforms who you are and how you live. Now there were some in the Corinthian church who denied that and then said, well, hey, here's the deal. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's like those today who say, it doesn't matter how I live, I've got fire insurance. You probably don't then. It matters how you live. And it is not justification by faithfulness. It is only by faith. Salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. But all who are truly saved will show faithfulness to God and they will persevere or they'll be shown to be false. The Bible teaches. Those who continue with Jesus belong to him. One last thing. The resurrection transforms now it transforms our hearts and it transforms our actions but it also transforms our thoughts and i I believe the life of the mind is where most of our battles are won and lost won or lost we ought to be confident in the resurrection live confident in the resurrection our thoughts are transformed in christ the bible tells us that we have the mind of christ So we can choose to think differently about God and about us. We can choose to think differently about sin, that now we hate our sin before we loved and coddled and 
and held on to our sin. We have a change of mind about what matters in life. Ephesians 4.23 speaks of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says, We are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's hard work. Our thoughts. I wonder if Paul ever wondered. I wonder if Paul ever said, you know what? I, I, I'm too, too bad of a sinner. It's interesting when he said that, that uh, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He said, among whom I'm foremost of all. He considered himself in his mind, in his thoughts, the worst sinner imaginable. Right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what he says in verse, in verse 8. He said, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared to me also. And then he says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles now he now was it because he was the last one in line you know he didn't have seniority no why he says because i'm unworthy to be called an apostle why because i persecuted the church of god there it is he remembered what he had done before now he didn't go on from here and say you know i'm the worst oh man i'm so bad oh 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 you know here's what he said here's what he said but Verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what every believer in Jesus says. By the grace of God. I know what I was like. I know what I did. I remember it better than anyone except God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul could say then it was not I but the grace of God that is with me how would he know that because he knew what he was like and so did everyone else Paul considered himself the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church but grace overcame if you're anything like me then you often beat yourself up over sins you committed maybe five 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And you continually remember those sins and it hinders your life in Christ. Psalm 103 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our our sins from us, our transgressions from us. Micah 7.19 says, you will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. What do we do? We go fishing for them. We dredge them up. We get a big old net and we go find them. And we let that override our life in Christ. Paul remembered what he did, but it didn't shape his life in terms of driving it. It reminded him of the grace of God. Jesus, 
I want you to listen to this. Jesus took your guilt. Jesus took your sin. Jesus took your penalty. On the cross. And then he demolished death when he rose from the grave. Don't renew guilt that that Christ died to do away with and rose again to overcome. Don't do it. And I asked a friend this question the other day. I said, you ever ever feel bad about what you did in the past? He's like, oh man, all the time. I said, me too. I said, what helps you overcome those thoughts? I loved his answer. He said, remember Jesus dying on the cross for me and rising from the dead. We ought not to pridefully try to be our own savior or foolishly pay for our own sins. We've got to allow the truth of the cross and the empty tomb to take hold of our lives to the point that we walk in victory. You see, Jesus is the answer for your every need. Are you enslaved to sin? Jesus is your freedom. Are you you self-righteous? Jesus is your righteousness. Are you bitter? Jesus is your merciful substitute feel hopeless Jesus is your example are you hateful Jesus is your reconciliation are you are you hungry and thirsty for God then Jesus is your sufficiency self-condemned Jesus is your ransom think you need to pay Jesus is your sacrifice overcome by guilt Jesus is your victory victory in Jesus our savior forever let's pray Lord God we thank you that your resurrection of Christ transforms our lives and secures our future so that we can now live in Christ's victory. We thank you, Lord, that the resurrection accomplished a rescue from sin and death and hell. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that the most purposeful, dramatic, perfectly timed rescue ever was initiated before time began. It was secured at the cross. It was seen in the resurrection. And it is experienced every time someone truly repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that that you work for our good and your glory. Thank you in Jesus' name.